Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds, thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magic Write is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. Canva. Support for this show comes from Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Loom help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone. Because individually, we're great, but together, we're so much better. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com. That's A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian. So on August 2nd, we formally pulled out of a decades-old nuclear treaty with Russia called the INF. Today on Worldly, part of the Vox Media Podcast Network, we're going to talk about why the decision to leave the treaty kind of made sense, but also why it's really scary. I'm Zach Beecham, here as always with Jen Williams and Alex Ward. Hey. What's up? Uh, Alex, can you give me the backstory on what's going on with this treaty? Sure. So it's the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty. As you rightly noted, the acronym was the INF. So back in the 80s or so, there was a legitimate concern between the U.S. and the Soviet Union that they were going to blow each other up and uh, the world along with them. And so late 80s, 1987 to be exact, the U.S. and Russia were worried that they were in the middle of this arms race and they wanted to do something about it. So the American president at the time, Ronald Reagan, and the Soviet leader, Mikhail Gorbachev, decided to strike this deal. So on December 8th, 1987, there are people sitting in the White House signing room, and Reagan and Gorbachev actually walk in while Hail to the Chief is playing in the background, and of course, everyone starts clapping. Welcome to the White House. So from the lectern, Reagan starts talking, and he explains that uh, he and Gorbachev are about to sign the INF Treaty and explains that, of course, this uh, agreement will eliminate a bunch of missiles on both sides. On our side, our entire complement of Pershing-2 and ground-launch cruise missiles with some 400 deployed warheads, will all be destroyed. And he talks about the thousands of missiles destroyed on the U.S. side and the Russian side. But the importance of this treaty transcends numbers. We have listened to the wisdom of, in an old Russian maxim. Though my pronunciation may give you difficulty, the maxim is, dovayai no provayai, trust but verify. <laughs> You repeat that at every meeting. <laughs> that's funny. <laughs> All right, that's that's a good joke, Gorbachev. That's a good joke. So, yeah, so that line, trust but verify, became one of the most kind of iconic phrases of the, like, arms control, like, framework we put in place toward the end of the Cold War. And then the two leaders sit in front of these really big, fat, you know, book-like documents. Cameras are flashing. They're taking pens, they're putting it to paper, and then they sign the IMF. Yeah. Now, 
Why is this treaty so important, right? It has to do with the nature of the missiles themselves. So these were ground-based, medium-range missiles. So we're talking missiles that are, well, in the medium range. They can go between about 300 to 3,400 miles. Basically, they're not like ones you can throw over the fence, but they're also not the big, giant, like, ICBMs that you can launch from one continent across, like, to the other side of the world. That's important, right? These missiles are in a range that are just close enough that if you're, you know, in Europe and the Soviet Union were to launch one of these, you wouldn't really have very much time to react properly and to, you know, either launch your own missiles in return or to judge even, is this an, an incoming missile or is this something else? So you guys remember that song, 99 Red Balloons? You and I in a I actually listen to it all the time, but mostly the punk cover. Yeah, the Goldfinger cover. Which is, I'm sorry, the better Worldly version. Worldly has all agreed that that is the best cover. But for those of you who don't remember that song, you know, it's all like this kind of upbeat, like poppy, oh, we're singing about red balloons. Uh, except that if you actually look closer, the song goes on to talk about then the red balloons are picked up by a, like a missile detection system. Panic bells, it's red alert. There's something here from somewhere else. The war machine, it springs to life, opens up one eager eye, focusing it on the sky as 99 red balloons go by. So there's this weird thing that happens on the radar. They're like, oh my God, what is this? Could it be like incoming, you know, weapons from the enemy? And then, like, the end is really, like, most people think of it as, oh, it's like, it's, I'm in the dust that was a city and I'm letting go balloons. But they're literally talking about standing in a nuclear wasteland of the ruins of a city that has been nuked because these 99 red balloons. So that's kind of what we're talking about here, basically. But to tie it back, though, like, these smaller range missiles are part of that concern that, like, we don't have enough time because they're shorter range, essentially, to even verify if, like, this is an incoming missile that we need to respond to an attack or 99 red balloons. One quick fact check. How did the city, like, turn to dust with the balloons survived? Look, it's poetic license. Okay, just like They're up in the air. You know how nuclear weapons work. They could detonate they could on the ground without actually having an air burst. We actually keep them in a bunker underground. It's gotcha. the balloon reserve. But the, the balloon bunker. balloon reserve. We need that. But look, the, the, the important thing to keep in mind here is that this is not entirely hypothetical. During the Cold War, there are a number of real near misses where uh, a radar detection on one side or the other thought that an, a launch was incoming. Yep. And then it didn't happen. And it was only because of decision making by people on one side or the other that this didn't actually lead to a preemptive nuclear launch. So trying to reduce the fear that they wouldn't be able to detect something or the time of a, of a missile coming in sooner really is a very important part of, well, preventing all of us from dying in yeah. a nuclear fire. And so just to clarify what's in this treaty, right? They agreed to basically get rid of all these weapons they already had built and they weren't going to build anymore and weren't going to field them. They weren't going to put them in the field. They weren't going to put them in the countries facing each other, basically, right? Yeah, they were going to de destroy and dismantle as many as they could. Um, and again, no more no more intermediate range missiles. So yay, INF. Well, now let's fast forward 30 years. Nena's song has held up pretty well. The Goldfinger cover is still better. But the nuclear situation is still unresolved. In 2014, the Obama administration called out Russia, claiming that they were violating the INF Treaty. Essentially, they're developing a new intermediate missile. And the Russians said they weren't, but they definitely were. 
Then we have the Trump administration and uh, U.S.-Russia relations go to a weird place. Yes. So the Trump administration basically makes an argument of December 2018 saying like, hey, we're going to start getting out of this thing if you guys don't start to comply. Then that position officially becomes policy in February of this year. They go and say, okay, well, this is our six-month official warning. The treaty was like, you have to give six months notice before you officially leave. And in August, early August, that six-month timeline came. The U.S. withdrew from the treaty. And of course, this entire time you have like the U.S. and NATO being like, Russia, you violated. It's time to come back in. Russia being like, no, U.S., you violated. Um, Okay, I have a question. Yeah. Like we have legitimate evidence, right, that Russia was doing this. This isn't just like some propaganda thing. Sorry, we're in the Cold War mindset here, but like there's like proof evidence that Russia did this, right? It's not public, but the intelligence community keeps saying, yes, we have it. Like Dan Coates has publicly said they have violated it. So, okay, but like when Russia— this is like an Iraq thing. You, some people are, are thinking about that, yeah. Okay, but so when Russia says, no, U.S., you did it, is there any evidence of that? There's no public evidence of that. Okay. Uh, they mostly point to the fact that, like, Russia's pointed to, like, there's been research and development to make a missile, but, like, that's not prohibited by the treaty. Okay, the I point just want to clarify. Like, yeah. it's, it's kind of a he said, she said right now. Bottom line, nobody's in the treaty anymore, right? Uh, correct. To be clear about the he said, she said, it is, like, the U.S. and all NATO countries saying Russia violated, and it is Russia being like, no, the U.S. violated. Got it. Okay, so this this really, to me, reeks of Russia actually did something bad and then is doing his typical troll move of saying, I know you are, but what am I? Pretty uh, much, yeah. Oh, wait. <laughs> I don't know if I screwed up that saying, but I do know that the United States is now out of the treaty officially, as is Russia, circa early August. Uh, and that that's what we're dealing with. And now after the break, we're going to talk about whether or not this is a good development or a destabilizing one. Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds, thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magic Write is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. Support for this show comes from Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Loom help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone. Because individually, we're great, but together, we're so much better. That's why millions of teams around the world, including 75% of the Fortune 500, Trust Atlassian Software for everything from space exploration and green energy to delivering pizzas and podcasts. Whether you're a team of two, 200 or 2 million, or whether your team is around the corner or on another continent altogether, Atlassian Software is built to help keep you all on the same page from start to finish. That way, every one of your teams, from engineering and IT to marketing, HR and legal, can stay connected and move together as one towards shared company-wide goals. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com. That's A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian. 
Welcome back, worldly listeners. So we are talking about the INF Treaty, which Trump has pulled the United States out of. Now we're going to get into the uh, the real meat of the issue, which is whether or not getting out of this longstanding international agreement was, in fact, a good thing. Alex, uh, you are our favorite nukehead. Start us off with the case for doing it. So the case for doing it is kind of twofold. And I, and I should say from the beginning, though, that there are kind of two levels of argument here. One of them is about our relations with Russia, and one of them is about future relations with China. So just keep those two things in mind as we go on. All right, let's start, with, let's start with the Russia part of it, because that seems more immediate. Okay, so the Russia part of it, the reason for getting out of the deal is Russia wasn't abiding by it. U.S. intelligence agencies, NATO countries had said Russia violated the deal. They created this new missile. On top of that, have deployed it with, like, battalions, so it's sort of operational. And so why should the U.S. be party to a deal that Russia is is uh, no longer abiding by? So that's kind of, like, the reason to leave is that there's, there's really no good reason to hamstring American weapons development when the other country that's supposed to be doing so is not. Maybe I'm just an instinctive hippie on this issue, but it strikes me that that's not— really all that persuasive, right? If the argument is that it's destabilizing to have these missiles at all, why would— uh, the U.S. doesn't need them to deter a Russian invasion of Europe or anything like that. It has overwhelming conventional superiority and tons and tons and tons of other nuclear weapons. Why would it put weapons closer to Russia and risk uh, causing a Russian miscalculation for no real reason? So this gets back to something that, and I can't believe I get to get this in, but I am, Dr. Strangelove. If you haven't seen it and you want to understand literally everything about what we're talking about, everything about the Cold War, about missile deterrence, seriously go watch that movie. It's amazing. But there's this whole kind of running joke about, like, the missile gap, right? And there's going to be, like, a peace gap. But they're talking about the missile gap, and they're talking about this technology gap. And it was a really big thing during the Cold War in particular where it was like, oh, no, there's going to be this gap in technology where suddenly the Russians have these weapons that we don't, and then it's going to destabilize that we're both even, we both have the same number of things so that we can't, like, really threaten each other. When you're looking at it now, you have people like John Bolton, National Security Advisor, who is one of these kind of old-school Cold Warrior mentality guys who doesn't necessarily believe in being part of international agreements that hamstring the United States. So, like, the argument is essentially like, well, if they have them and they can threaten us this way, we should have them too. And I, I agree. I don't think that's a particularly compelling argument, but that is the argument. And I know there are a lot of arms control experts that will say, well, it's not great, but it's not like— this isn't a bad Trump decision in the sense of we are bad. We pulled out of this thing that was really working well. This isn't like the Iran deal. This thing was really not working because Russia wasn't abiding by it. Sure. Which then takes us to sort of the bad argument, which is or sorry, the why this is bad, which is like the Russia U.S. arms race is kind of back on for these types of missiles. Right. So to be very clear about what Russia can threaten with them, a lot of Europe, in fact, most of Europe, and part, certain parts of Asia, right? So that's particularly bad. And, of course, if the U.S. were to put these missiles in Europe, then, of course, it threatens a whole bunch of Russia and, and nearby countries. So the, the the theory here, of course, why it's bad is, like, it's, if Russia keeps building some, we keep building some, and then et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then there's just sort of a proliferation of these incredibly dangerous weapons, which we've talked about earlier, can hit with kind of, like, without a moment's notice. Yeah, again, the the— the arguments for this make no sense to me. Yeah. So no just, sense to just me Just to be all. clear for everyone who's listening, the good case is, yay, more missiles. The bad case is, yay, more missiles. Yeah. So, like— Is there we, any, is there any like, 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 strategically credible case that isn't just, we want to have what they have? Like, what Jen was just describing about well, can't allow a gap? I think that's where you get to China. Yeah, exactly. So, this is now—now now let's go to the China section. 
one of the arguments for why this is good is that China's been developing these kinds of missiles, these ground-based missiles, nonstop. The U.S., of course, hasn't, and so they're worried about a future war with China in which the U.S., again, is sort of at a deficit when it comes to being able to use these weapons in war. China can threaten a whole bunch of things with these, um, including U.S. ships, et cetera. And so for many people, this is a, this is about like a f- – for the future – we need to no, – America needs to be ready and needs to be ready for a fight and having these missiles is part of that. So I can say – like I can see being the Trump administration or being, you know, any administration, honestly, and coming in and going, OK, look, we have this adversary, China, who's getting stronger and is building these weapons that we have agreed that we pinky promise we absolutely won't build because we have this longstanding agreement with Russia – well, Russia's cheating on it, so literally, why are we still in this? I can see that logic. Now, again, I think it goes back to the question of, like, okay, well, where does that take you? A whole lot more missiles and an arms race. But I understand I, the thinking on that, at least. So this treaty only applies to ground-based missiles, but I don't know, and this is, I think, an important question for the thing we're talking about right now, if it applies only to nuclear-equipped missiles or any intermediate missiles, even conventional Any intermediate missile. So it's called a nuclear treaty because these missiles can carry nukes. Right now, most of the discussion is like, these are really just conventional bombs. Okay, well, that makes a a tremendous amount of difference, right? Especially in the China case, because we don't need to have more nuclear weapons near China. But in the case of an actual military conflict in East Asia, it probably would be really useful to have a bunch of intermediate-ranged conventional missiles that you could fire on uh, Chinese emplacements, ships, whatever it is that you need to hit— that would be difficult for China to intercept and stop. Right. But now let's go to the sort of the reason why it's not great, right? The bad case when it comes to China. And it's kind of twofold. One is, well, just based on geography and distance, you need to place these ground-based missiles somewhere near China. Um, (laughs) That's the whole point of these missiles. Right. Right now there is no country, at least publicly known as of this taping, that has agreed to take on American weapons of this I mean, kind. what are the options, right? So the South op- Korea, Japan, South Korea, uh, Australia. So South Korea would be close. It'd be like Japan, the Philippines, Australia, and to, uh, st- uh, that'd be hard, actually. Right. So something like yeah. that, just it's, to yeah. give people a sense of what we're talking it's about. It's mostly like Japan, the Philippines, and uh, Japan, of course, has been uh, naturally testy when it comes to uh, having weapons in there, and the Philippines may agree to it. We don't know. But as of now, like, there is no place to put these. The second of why it's bad is we don't really have a deal with China to, like, diffuse the situation. And so if we start building missiles and putting them near China, well, China may build more of its own missiles. It may put in other kind of defenses. It may make other punishments against us. In fact— Go for it. Just last week, pretty much right after the administration officially said the treaty's dead, we're out of this, and the defense secretary basically of the U.S. started saying, okay, potentially within months, we could be fielding these missiles near, you know, China in Asia. Uh, China basically came out with a statement saying, yeah, no, if you do that, we are going to respond. And they weren't very specific, but unspecified countermeasures will be put in place, which is basically them saying, yeah, no. Any of that that you're thinking of doing with those missiles? No, to all of that. Okay, I'm back to my original hippie position, which is that these are incredibly destabilizing because, though I was drawing a distinction between conventional and nuclear missiles earlier, once they go off, you can't tell which one is which. I mean, you can't really land. Yeah, but if you have a short amount of time and you're a Chinese policymaker and the U.S. just launched an intermediate-ranged missile at you, you have to make a snap decision that they might, in fact, be launching a nuclear first strike. At least I assume that's why the treaty would cover both conventional and nuclear. Maybe there's some secret technology that makes the entire argument that I'm making here invalid. 
But it really does seem tremendously destabilizing to create this level of uncertainty in the middle of a, of a conflict situation that would already, by its nature, be tense. Right. And so to, to go back to, like, the Trump administration, I mean, yes, the defense secretary was saying we could put these missiles potentially in Asia, like, within the coming months. But they're also talking about getting a better deal because, again, this is the Trump administration and art of the deal, right? That's that's our guy, our president. He has said that, like, it would be great if we could get a better deal that also included not just Russia, but China. We could have, like, a bigger deal with all of us. Now, the possibility of that seems not likely in my estimation. I could be wrong. The sort of takeaway of all of this is you probably think this is a good idea if you believe America should have weapons that others are developing and we shouldn't hamstring ourselves. You probably think this is a bad idea if you worry that this will create a massive arms race and destabilize the world. There are nuances, but that's kind of the positions that we're hearing about the Trump decision. And so I I, want to end with a bad joke I've been dying to make for this whole episode, which is, in Soviet Russia, missile build you. And God, that was bad. It was Thank even worse when I said host, it. Thank you to host, And thanks, actually, to our producer, Bird Pinkerton, who mercifully let me make that joke. I want to encourage all of you to rate, subscribe, and review the podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And yeah, we will see you next week. Canva presents unexplained appearances. It was an ordinary workday until... That presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily on brand. Wait, did that agenda just write itself? Words appear, making this unexplainable case... Unexplainable? It's Canva's AI tools. I can generate slides and words in seconds. Really? The real mystery is why I'm only learning this now. Canva.com. Designed for work.